Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Eric San Juan, author of the book, The Films of Martin Scorsese, Gangsters, Greed, and Guilt, published in 2020 by Roman and Littlefield. Eric's book is an analysis of the 26 narrative movies directed by Scorsese, and Eric discusses his style and concepts, as well as presenting details about a number of individual films. Welcome, Eric San Juan. Hi, Eric. How are you today? I'm doing very well. How are you? Thanks for having me on. I wanted to talk about um, your book, which is The Films of Martin Scorsese. Uh, He's had a long career, going back to 67, as far as feature films are concerned. But I think sometimes uh, his career gets overshadowed a little by his crime and gangster films, which seem to be the ones that most people remember. In your book... You review all 26 of his narrative films, beginning with Who's That Knocking at My Door from 1967 through last year's The Irishman. But before we get into the films, I wanted to get some details about your background. You've written a number of books, including one on Kurosawa, and you've also co-written two books on Hitchcock. What led you to want to write about film? Um, You know, I started off with a background in journalism. Uh, I still do some freelance journalism now, but prior to... Switching to the freelance world, um, I was um, both an on-the-street journalist and then in the office as an editor for about 15 years or so. So my my initial interest came in just the uh, my love of doing research and exploring topics that were of interest to me and then finding ways to kind of distill what I discovered and bring them to other people. So at the time, in the uh, the early to mid-2000s, I was um, editor-in-chief for a now-defunct DVD and film website. And um, one of the writers who I worked with, uh, Jim McDevitt, um, and I had talked a lot, and he really had sort of started to immerse me in the world of Alfred Hitchcock. And, of course, I very much fell in love and we kind of brainstormed on this, this, this idea I said, you know, I, th- I think I might have a concept that would make not only good uh, for a good series of, of weekly columns, but I think this might actually be a book. And so that's where our first book came from a year of Hitchcock, 52 weeks with the master of suspense. Um, you know, Jim really brought to the table his expertise on the world of Alfred Hitchcock and the golden age of Hollywood cinema in general. And I kind of brought the, the writing and journalism aspect to it and um, just kind of went from there. After doing that project, I felt that I wanted to explore this territory again. And so we revisited Hitchcock and I visited Kurosawa and my editor approached me after the Kurosawa book and said, you know, what's next? And I said, I already knew the answer. I knew it was going to be Scorsese. And so he said, great, I'm a Scorsese fan. Let's do it. It's funny. You said two things in your uh, statement there. Number one, now defunct website. I suspect there's a lot of people who could use that. uh, In fact, I can. Not one that I specifically (laughs) founded, but one that I worked on. So did interviews for. Uh, The other thing was that uh, 
you mentioned you have a journalism background, and I've interviewed a number of people who have written books on film-related but are also with journalism backgrounds. And one of the things I always find that is so good with journalists is that they know how to get to the meat of a story. Nothing wrong with adding flour or adding extra details, but sometimes what you need is a punch, and um, journalists seem to know how to do that. I hope I was able to to accomplish that. I mean, in in doing work like this, it, it is an opportunity to indulge in the more subjective side of the work. Um, whereas when you're when you're working as a journalist, you're trying to be as objective as, as you can. Um, so hopefully that's you know, I, I was able to to walk that balance. But, you know, it's um it's an experiment every time you dive into a project like this. So let's get into Martin Scorsese. What, what was the first film of his, his that you ever saw? I would say it was probably Goodfellas, though I can't say that for sure. But Goodfellas was one of these pictures that um, I had on VHS shortly after it came out, and we just watched it on a loop. Um, it's, still, it's still one of these movies where you can tune in at any given point in it and watch it from there forward and you'll enjoy it or watch just 20 minutes and enjoy it. And that's, that was very much how it was in my household. It was on all the time. If I had seen any other Scorsese pictures prior to that, I don't specifically remember. I might've seen Raging Bull at some point in the eighties, but I don't a hundred percent recall the the first one where I had indelible memories of is, uh, is certainly Goodfellas. That was a, that was a formative picture for me. That was one of the first films where I realized like, Oh, okay. This isn't just entertainment. This is, there's something more here. One of the ways that I knew of him myself was I was uh, following film already. Of course, I think I'm a little older than you, but uh, when Ebert and Siskel first appeared on public television and then eventually went to their own shows, and there was no question if a Martin Scorsese film came out, they were going to review it. And I Mm -hmm. definitely remember them discussing Raging Bull and course at the time what was so interesting to me or what i found interesting and was the fact that you know the the fact that it was in black and white the whole issue of uh of robert de niro gaining and all that weight and then losing it mm-hmm. again and and those kind of things uh made the film much more interesting to me even though the topic of boxing or that kind of thing wasn't something that i particularly was interested in i don't know when you started to get into your more uh, film analysis, but uh, what did you feel when you when you first saw Goodfellas or some of his more later films not too long after that? Did you immediately spot things that you could say, oh, I can see why he's different? I don't know that I was immediately cognizant of what it was that made his work special, because initially when you see some of the pictures, at least the ones that he's best known for in mainstream consciousness, um, you know, there's a sort of almost uh, music video-ish kinetic energy to it that draws you in on a, on a very primal level. Um, and, and Goodfellas has that. Casino has that. Um, to some extent, maybe you could say Gangs in New York has that. Um, and so that was what initially drew me in. I think what what finally started to convince me a, a little bit, like let's say with with, with Goodfellas, was this idea that like once you get a sense for the fine balance between attraction and repulsion when it comes to the characters. Um, and I think that was something that it, um, I hadn't, if I had experienced, experienced it before in film that this was really the first time where 
it came to the forefront where I really noticed it, where you you enjoy spending time with these horrible people. And yet the film makes no qualms, uh, has no qualms about letting you know these are horrible people. You you might enjoy spending time in their world, but it's a terrible world and, and you really shouldn't um, revel in it. Um, and so so that was one of the first things that stood out to me. And then just as I started watching film more seriously and with adult eyes, you just start noticing the the the, the techniques that that set him apart. Um, you, you start realizing that a lot of the films that you had been watching were just very kind of pedestrian. They, they went through the motions. They were very standard as far as, um, you know, here's your, your your medium shot and here's, you know, just the the the, the techniques were um, for most directors are just pretty standard stuff. Whereas Scorsese, there's something that sets him apart. Going into that a little bit more with his style, in your introduction, you talk about a number of concepts, specifically things like his use of anti-heroes, um, which, as you just pointed out, I mean, a lot of his films feature people who, you know, if you were walking down the street and saw them, you would definitely cross the street. <laughs> right. uh, the fact that loudness and brashness are very important to a lot of his films, that he doesn't care about Hollywood convention and is willing to ignore it most of the time. Mm -hmm. uh, you point out a couple examples of where continuity doesn't even work for him. Sometimes he's perfectly willing to ignore obvious mistakes as long as he feels like the performances he got were better. What do you consider to be some of these aspects that you go into detail about uh, that can be seen throughout his films, even the ones that aren't necessarily in the same vein as, as the ones most people know? I mean, you certainly touched on a couple of them there. I think um, I think it's it's important to sort of note that while a lot of his films have kind of a, a like you say, a, a loudness and a brashness to them. And that's very common throughout his work, even in pictures that aren't specifically about, um, about crime, um, bringing out the dead, for instance, it very much has a similar style and technique as Goodfellas does. And yet it's a much different picture with much different themes, but there's, um, there's just a high energy there. But I think it's also important to, to kind of note that it's not loud for its own sake. It's not in your face for its own sake. Uh, there's usually a purpose to it. He, he's not. Um, I don't think he tends to be uh, indulgent in that respect. He's indulgent in other ways, certainly, but not in that respect. And I don't think he does it just for the sake of of, of doing it. Um, I'm, I'm losing the word that I'm uh, that I'm searching for here, but he's not. Um, well, I'll skip that. But, you know, you know, um, but, yeah, when 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 it when it comes to, to, you know, the 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 violence and the profanity and so on, you, I, I rarely get a sense from him that he's doing it just because he can or just to shock the audience. Um, and I think that's really important in his work. Um, some of the other stuff is is just the uh, his 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 whirlwind camera and very much the kind of needle drop soundtrack that he often has in in his pictures. His use of music is. Um, not just impeccable, but it influenced an entire generation of filmmakers to come. And as somebody who grew up in a household where, where music was basically playing 24 hours a day, where music is a huge, huge part of part of day-to-day -day life, having music woven so firmly into the fabric of his pictures really, really stood out to me. I mean, his song choices and, and, and when he would drop them, that kind of stuff. Um, just nobody, nobody was really doing that until he came along and showed us 
how to do it well. Um, those, those are, you know, just just a couple of uh, sort of the technical things that stand out to me. And then, you know, then, of course, you get into the, the themes and that's a whole whole other topic. What is interesting with me and his films and even to, to his present films is that a lot of his films, he does not find the need to have a real quote unquote soundtrack. Uh, he doesn't. A lot of the films don't have uh, regular soundtrack uh, music, um, which was not unusual given when he started. There was a lot of situations where uh, soundtracks during the early during the sixties, late sixties, and early seventies, where and into the seventies, where soundtracks were not necessarily as important as they've since become. Uh, again, obviously, they were more important in the past, but. The fact that he still to this day, and Irishman is a perfect example where he just wants to just put various songs, and he's going to use those songs. And while some uh, writer or some filmmakers may put songs on just to fill in the spaces until they get to the composing, um, he uses them because I'm going to guess that's what he was thinking of at the time that he was uh, working on a scene. Yeah, I I really get the sense from him that when it comes to his music selections he's not choosing them because you know just because the song is great and he wants people to hear it or because he wants people to say oh i know that one uh there there's often a, a real sense of purpose in, in in his choices and sometimes it's purely a matter of mood um but sometimes there's a little more subtlety in there i think um casino is a really great example of that where a lot of his song choices if you if you pay close attention to the lyrical content of the of the songs they're commenting on the picture right there in, in the midst of the, of, of the film. There's some commentary there. And um, I think he's, he's probably just as knowledgeable with music as he is with, with film. And that's saying quite a bit. So when, when, when he makes a choice, you should probably, you know, prick up your ears and, and, and pay attention because he's making that choice for a reason. Of course, uh, even though it's not the part subject of your book, um, he's also a, very accomplished documentarian and many of his documentaries are music related um he's done a couple with dylan he's done a rolling stones one he did the last waltz famously he worked on woodstock even though he wasn't the director so clearly his musical background is is there absolutely and and for anyone listening who isn't aware of his background when it comes to being a documentary filmmaker i mean i think you would agree right I highly recommend to to check out his work because he's a he's um he's just as good a documentary maker as he is a feature filmmaker. Um, I it I, I really wanted to include that aspect of his work in this book, but just for um, for length, you just you can't you you know I couldn't do I couldn't do both and do the feature films justice. Well, that's the thing. He's written so many. I mean, he's been involved in so many films over the years. I mean, twenty six films over you know fifty three years. At, at first glance, basically sounds like one every other year, which it sort of looks that way if you look at his, the dates of his various films. But all the other ones that were in, in the same time, he was doing documentaries in the middle of them. I mean, you know, it was not unusual to see that. But So let's, uh, let's start talking about some of the films. Obviously, with 26 of them, we could talk about any of them, and I'm sure we will talk about quite a few of them. But I'd like to feature a, a few. And the first one I want to talk about is Bassick in his early period. And by that, I mean his first film, um, not Who's That Knocking at My Door, was in 67, was basically a continuation or a buildup of his uh, 
of his work, his student work. So you sort of look at that film and say, eh, that's not really a Martin Scorsese. I mean, it is, but it's not the same going forward. But um, his early period, he's got Mean Streets and Taxi Driver. And if you want to talk about starting off with a bang, so to speak, those two films, I think, goes a long way to showing that. But in the middle of the two, he does Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, mm-hmm. which most, if you told somebody about Alice Doesn't, they anybody that knows that film probably knows he directed it because otherwise they're not even thinking about the film. But it is, it's a definitely in stark contrast to the other two. But what stands out to you about that film, particularly as it relates to his early style? Uh, there are two things that really stand out. One is the fact that it's a very rare Scorsese picture with a female lead, and that is prominently focused on um, on issues that are concerning the life of a woman. He's had great he's had great female leads um, or co leads throughout his career, and I think he gets knocked a little bit for not having great woman characters when in fact i mean i uh, what i think i think seven maybe eight i I, uh, please don't quote me on that but a great number of his leading ladies have had um best actress and best supporting actress nominations certainly he's given women great roles but this is one of the few pictures where um the woman is the center of the picture um but the the other thing that stands out and that you wouldn't expect given what i just said there is that um the Scorsese style is still here. It's still present and it's it's quite visible. You just wouldn't imagine it in this kind of picture, which, you know, really concerns a woman's journey into finding herself and learning to live on her own without her husband and developing her relationship with with her son as a single woman. And yet there are scenes of that sort of very visceral, very difficult to watch violence particularly with Harvey Keitel's character. Uh, there are wonderful scenes um, in, you know, where, where he uses music to great effect. Um, you know, there's, there's that sort of very gritty, grounded realism, sort of hyper-realism almost th- there that you wouldn't expect in this picture given what the subject matter is. One of the strangest aspects of that film is the fact that it Finally, it, it later became a television show, a comedy television <laughs> yes. show called Alice. And it's almost like uh, if we use comic book terms that there are two different planets on a multiverse because uh, <laughs> there's there's little, if anything, other than the character and her basic concept and the fact that she worked in a diner that compares the two. So it is just so funny that something like it's sort of. I, I would I wouldn't want to use the comparison to MASH, given that the MASH television show, in many ways, is was even greater than the film. But uh, I think it it still makes for an interesting comparison. It yeah, it it certainly does, and I, I love your your comic book comparison there. I think it's very very apt. Yeah, it's um, it's it's strange to see a Scorsese picture reinterpreted in that in that way. Now, granted. This wasn't a picture that he wrote. It was one that was brought to him, um, but still, it, it was brought to him for a reason, though. You know, they uh, they they wanted his sensibility after having seen uh, Mean Streets, um, which came out the year prior. So, you know, this might not be a Scorsese concept, but I think still at its heart, it's a Scorsese picture. Speaking of that, and this was going to lead into as we continue, is that. 
his willingness to take mainstream film jobs uh, so that he can work on the ones the, the, those that he considers more meaningful. You've got gave me an example there, although I would not ever consider Alice Doesn't Live Here anymore to be a quote-unquote mainstream film as at, in, at its core. But that's um, not unusual because obviously Scorsese was coming up at the same time of people like Francis Ford Coppola, who frankly, famously has done the same thing where he took films that he didn't really care that much about just so that he could get uh, work doing the ones he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, uh, there are a lot of people, partly because of the independent film streak that was coming up during this period. So how does The Color of Money, made that which he made right before The Last Temptation of Christ, fit into that concept of main, doing a mainstream film so you can do the films you want? I certainly, I think, if, if when it comes to that particular topic... I think you can probably make the case that maybe outside of Hugo, it's the definitive example of Scorsese going mainstream for the sake of continuing his career. Um, he certainly did with Cape Fear as well, and Cape Fear was a huge success. But but with Cape Fear, I think he managed to twist the movie he was initially given enough to make it his. Um, the Color of Money, there's not that much. There's There's some Scorsese in there. And I think he drew on some of his experience uh, growing up in New York and, and being on the streets of New York and being in pool houses. He's very comfortable in that environment. Um, you know, there's that great fight scene in Mean Streets that takes place in a in a dingy pool hall. Um, but, yeah, The Color of Money was was really about the star power. It's about, you know, uh, bringing Paul Newman to life and this this rising star, Tom Cruise, who some people may have heard of. <laughs> um, and and. I think it was very much made with the audience in mind, uh, more so than many of his pictures are. There's still some great techniques going on there, you, um, you know, especially in the scenes of Tom Cruise playing pool. He uses a lot of um, I think I think in the book, I liken it a little bit to his approach with the boxing scenes in Raging Bull. There's kind of a, um, a hyper realism about it. You know, they're, 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 though it feels very real, it, it isn't. You know, when you when you see Raging Bull, those those boxing scenes, that's not how boxing plays out. Um, and that's OK, because that's not the intent. Um, but but yeah, this this picture is. Um, I remember this one from when when I was younger as well. In fact, I may have seen this prior to seeing um, prior to have seen uh, seen Goodfellas. Um, but because I remember some some years later learning that Scorsese had directed it. And I was like, are you sure about that? Um, you get that sometimes with some of his films. You have to think about it for a minute. He did, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. It, you, you don't remember uh, unless you've watched them multiple times. It's very easy to forget that, you know, especially given, especially nowadays where he's he's been typecast so poorly uh, with the quote-unquote kind of films he makes that uh, a film like that would fall through the cracks a little bit. Right. Yeah, and I think the the other really interesting thing about the color of money and the thing that makes it so unusual in his filmography is of course that it's a, a sequel to a very beloved picture from 1959 the hustler with with newman and uh, and jackie gleason and uh, again that's not the sort of thing that we now expect from martin scorsese i guess at the time in the in the 1980s when his career was kind of in flux and it wasn't clear that he was going to continue to, he was going to go on to be become the legendary director that 
um, say, Roger Ebert always predicted that he would be. Maybe it wasn't as surprising for him to do something like this, but in, but in retrospect, yeah, it certainly stands out. So I want to mention Last Temptation of Christ, given that that was the film that came out next and clearly uh, was a labor of, I guess, love. We can use that for him. It was an important film for him to make. Um, in your introduction, you talk a lot about his, and in some of the other books, or some of the other films, you talk a lot about his being raised Roman Catholic, even though obviously he didn't live, or doesn't live a Roman Catholic life. Um, what aspects of that uh, background of his were so important for the Last Temptation of Christ? Uh, I think there are a few things there. Um, certainly, Scorsese himself, I think, has always lived with this sense of unspecified guilt hanging over him, which a lot of people very much associate with Catholicism. And, and Scorsese himself would, would say that. And you, you sense that in a lot of his pictures. And I think that was something that he kind of needed to explore here. And I think he wanted to explore his own relationship with Jesus Christ. I think he, um, he had sort of uncertain or unsteady feelings about what it really meant to be a man of faith and what it really meant to be a Catholic. And though he, as you, as you rightly point out, he hasn't necessarily lived his life by Catholic ideals. He still considers himself um, a man of faith. And so, you know, I think he, I think, I think this picture was really him wanting to dive into his own feelings and his own relationship with, with his, with his faith. Um, which is, which is why I think he made the interesting choice to interpret Jesus as a man okay you know what 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 would what would jesus's experience in his time on earth be like um if you if it was seen through the eyes of him being a mortal man a human man and and so sort of that's kind of the thrust of the picture and it's one of the reasons why of course it became so controversial because this is a very human very grounded very flawed jesus of nazareth um but i think that's what scorsese wanted to see he wanted to see like okay but who was jesus as a man not as this sort of deified untouchable figure but who was he really as a man because he was both of course it's interesting that uh this whole concept in, in the film came out in 89 so uh you would think by that point this concept wouldn't be completely foreign i mean to a large extent the infamous or famous rock opera jesus christ superstar was built around the same concept of trying to look at Christ more as a man than as a, a god, so to speak. But obviously, I have to assume that, or whether he was completely surprised by all the controversy, or did he just assume that Last Temptation of Christ was not going to be a film that was going to open easily? Yeah, I, I think he was also somewhat a victim of his times. I think had this film been made um, 10 or 15 years prior, it might have received a, a different um, a different reception, but coming in 1988 and being made through throughout on and off kind of, uh, throughout the mid eighties, which was a time when, um, there was a, a renewed conservatism in the United States. We were, you know, we're in the midst of the, the Reagan era and, um, through things like let's, you know, there was the satanic panic and so on. So there was this, there was this new focus on these issues and this, this sort of idea once again, that, you must tread very carefully 
when dealing with and talking about you know sort of religious icons and religious figures um, like like Jesus. So I, of course, we were at the rise of the Christian right as well during this period because it was Reagan who really was the first to reach out to uh, evangelicals as a as mm-hmm. a voting block. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. So it's you know you you make a, a great point when you mention Jesus Christ Superstar, which had come the decade prior, and I. I I can't help but wonder that had Last Temptation come out in the 70s, if it wouldn't be would if it wouldn't have been received much differently, not only because of the the because um, it would have fit a little more with that era. But it's also a much more 70s feeling picture as far as its groundedness and its grittiness and um, it's very kind of rough and low budget nature. So, of course, now we're talking about this is through 1989. And for any filmmaker, that alone would be a great career. And yet oh, in nineteen and yet in nineteen ninety he goes completely onto a next his next phase. And this is the truth. The first gangster mill movie he made was in nineteen ninety. And that was Goodfellas. Uh prior to that he did a lot of things with bad people who were quote unquote bad or or, or had their issues. But the first time he actually looked at a gangster was in Goodfellas. And definitely one of his one of the greatest crime films compared favorably to The Godfather. In fact, many people, if you look at errors, Godfather was the uh, crime film of the pe- of the 70s, and of course, Goodfellas was the crime film of the 90s, um, although he then, of course, tried to top himself more than once. Um, I follow- He follows the book very closely in the movie, which is interesting because I know his movies are based often based on books, uh, the question is, how often does he follow them carefully? But having just reread Wise Guys, the book Godfa- uh, Goodfellas is based on, um, and then watching the film, he does follow it very closely. There's, there's very few times where he gets that far away from it. Um, and yet, he, he's careful about that. So, for example, since the, since the film and the book are supposed to be from Henry Hill's point of view, he doesn't show any of the actual Lufthansa heist because Hill wasn't involved in it. We only, yeah, which we is, only get it from Hill's point of view when he finds out it happened. A fascinating choice, really. I mean, that's a, an, an incredible choice. You know, you, you typically you want to show the, the major events on screen. But yeah, as, as you point out, this is Henry's movie. So, of course, you don't see it. So what about uh, Goodfellas? What were there differences in the way he made Goodfellas versus his earlier films, or what did he build on or create new that affected him going forward? I think one of the things that that really signified a, a shift in style for Scorsese with with Goodfellas is um, is he threw out he threw out the door the the whole idea of needing to have an intention span for for one you know this 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 it's this is less of a two hour and twenty minute full narrative as it is this series of short vignettes about Henry Hill's life. I mean, it's very rapid fire. You can, you can pluck out five minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes out of the picture and sort of have a mini semi-complete story there because it's about a series of moments more than it is the full arc of, of, of his life. Um, and it, you know, it was very much of, of the era. I think he, he himself has even cited the, the, the notion of having a music video approach to it. So it's, you know, bang, 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 very rapid fire. Um, you, you had mentioned earlier his, um, his disregard for continuity, 
which I touch on in, in the book, and we see it as early as who's that knocking at my door. But here, again, it, it really pops up here where it doesn't matter what characters are doing from, from take to take as long as he has the performance that he wants. Um, you know, I think, I think in watching this picture when I was younger, one of the first things that I had always noticed was the appearing and disappearing cigar that Paulie has in, in one scene. And I said, oh, boy, that's a that's a mistake. They made they made a mistake there. It wasn't until later I, I came to learn that. Now, I'm sure that he was well aware of that. He just he just didn't care because it's not about that kind of that kind of thing. Um, yeah, it, it this is definitely the sort of the turning point of his of his career, though. I mean, it, it's, it's, as you say, it's uh, it's the start of a new era for him. Um, and, and that that lack of concern for an attention span, you know, is, is certainly a part of that. There really isn't anything in this picture, despite the fact that it is his most famous one in, in his career, the, uh, the famous Copacabana shot. There's really not anything in this picture that demands you sit down and really take in um, and ponder what you're seeing. There's not a slowness to it. There's not a, um, an, a, um, a deliberate pace to it, um, such as what you get in the, the non-boxing scenes in Raging Bull, for instance. Um, it's this is it's just nonstop. the The energy is relentless. You talk about continuity errors, and speaking of crime films, the one that always gets me, and I'm I'm sure it's me more than anybody else, is early on in The Godfather, when uh, Francis, when um, Marlon Marlon Brando's talking to the Nazarene the baker, and the Na- Nazarene has his has his cigar in one hand. And then he go in the next shot. He's shaking hands, du- doing a double shake hands with Marlon Brando. <laughs> yes. And what what happened to the cigar? And suddenly it's in his mouth. So obviously, uh, Coppola didn't care about that. He figured, what the heck? We don't have to actually see him put the cigar in his mouth so he could shake his hands. But it's one of those little things that, unfortunately, this is what happens when you watch a film too many times in a row. Or, you know, often you tend to spot those things. So. Obviously, Goodfellas, one of the most striking things about it, obviously, is this use of narration. And, of course, from this point on, it's pretty regular in many of his films, plus also his willingness to break the fourth wall and have characters talk directly to the camera. Yeah, I, I think um, I think Taxi Driver probably stands out as a little more prominent in that regard, um, just because it, it wasn't used as much in Taxi Driver, but it's just as important to the narrative there, um, because in Taxi Driver, that you know, the narration really helps you get into De Niro's mind. Um, but Goodfellas is where I think he kind of fully threw out the rules and said, you know what, narration works for me, and I know how to use it well, and I can use it to great effect. So I'm going to start using it all the time now, um, despite the fact that it's frequently frowned upon. You know, the taxi driver driver might have been an, a little bit of an anomaly in that regard, but yeah, by the but Goodfellas came along and he finally just said, "No, you know what? This is this is a great technique, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna use it." And he even in he even breaks the rules of narration in Goodfellas by having a second narrator pop in partway through the film when you know yeah, but, Karen. But what's interesting narrated. about that is that's exactly the way the book's written. Most of it's mm-hmm. through Henry Hill, but every once in a while we get Karen's point of view in the book. So it, in a sense, you're right; it's unusual, but it makes sense, especially if you know if you're if you're familiar with the book. 
I, I think it's I think it really helps um, that he and Nicholas Pelegi worked side by side right. in developing this screenplay um, because you know of course you know Pelegi wrote Wise Guy and and then worked on the film as well with Scorsese so it's you know boy it doesn't get much more from the source from that right mm-hmm. and some directors are very good about ignoring the writer even the original source material. But as I said before, I do feel like uh, Scorsese felt there was enough in the real life stuff that we didn't want to just uh, ignore it or, or we don't have to build on it or, or, or over-dramatize it because there's a lot of drama there already. Absolutely. And, and you know, you touch on something really important that I think is really noteworthy. Um, you know, as you say, a lot of directors make it a habit of ignoring the, you know, the writer and, 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 taking the source material and making, making it their own and, and so on. But Scorsese not only doesn't tend to do that, or, or if he does, it's in, it's very much in service of the, the, the themes and the story that he's trying to tell. But I think most importantly, one of the things that we see here with his work with Pelegi and it carries through with his work with his actors, he's very much a, a collaborative creator. You know, we, we, we look at him as a, as a creator with um, a singular vision similar to Kurosawa and Hitchcock and, and, um, and Tarantino and, and many others. But, and, and while he is a, cr- a creator with a singular vision, he's, he's a collaborator. He's very much a collaborator. I think that's one of the things that makes his work so interesting is that um, he really affords the people he works with the ability to bring something to the table. And then it's just really his vision of picking out what works and what doesn't and fitting that into his overall tapestry. Of course, that's probably one of the reasons he, like a lot of great directors, likes working with the same people. He mm-hmm. he feels like these are people who I can collaborate with. And, I mean, Pelegi's involved with a lot of his later films. Obviously, many of the actors uh, appear for the first time in, in or, or early on. I mean, De Niro is the obvious one. But then in later times, people like DiCaprio and others Harvey Keitel, for example, um, mm-hmm. regularly appears in his films, and I think this probably goes back to that concept of these are people who he knows uh, he can collaborate with. Absolutely, he's um, <clears throat> some directors. Again, Alfred Hitchcock is a great example. Alfred Hitchcock famously planned out his films in such meticulous detail that he often found the process of directing them boring. He didn't enjoy directing the pictures because as far as he was concerned, he had already made the picture in his mind. He knew exactly what it was going to look like when it was done. And all he needed was for the actors to get up there and go through the motions. And, you know, um, and, and, and that was that for Scorsese, he likes to get hands on on set. He likes to invent on set. Um, he's, he's in love with that, with that process of being, being on set and figuring things out and, and that kind of thing. And, it's probably caused problems for him because he's often had budget issues with his pictures, um, you know, and he's had problems securing money over the years and uh, pictures going on, you know, over budget and that sort of thing. He's not really known as uh, the kind of guy who brings his movies in on time and on budget, but you can't really argue with the results. We were talking about the narration part and I'm shocked. I mean, you can tell you it's been a long time since I've seen Taxi Driver, which is unfortunate, but I'd forgotten that had a narrator. But he, I know, really, with Goodfellas, he really takes it to the next level, including, uh, famously, though, casino narrators. Once again, we have a dual narrator. But what's more interesting to me was the fact 
we didn't know till the end of the film which of the two was actually dead because yeah. <laughs> you got a narrator who's dead or you think so right at the beginning in the in um Robert De Niro's character one is it turns out it's Joe Pesci who ends up dying in the film so uh and yet he's also narrator so obviously Scorsese doesn't even care whether the person's alive or dead if he wants to use him as a narrator absolutely and and amazingly Pesci's character dies while narrating the picture which which is a remarkable choice it it actually does not make any bit of sense when you think about it, but it sort of doesn't matter. He's He has that kind of disregard for the rules of what you expect that it kind of doesn't matter. It's a, it's it's shocking the very first time you see it and, you know, you're, you're listening to, um, you're listening to, uh, to, to, to Pesci's character, uh, Nikki, you know, discuss what's going on. And right, right there in the midst of his narration, he gets bopped over the head with, with, with the bat. It's, um, it's a shocking moment. It's, there's almost a degree of ridiculousness and absurdity to it, yet the violence is so horrible and it comes so comes out of out of the blue that um, the absurdity works. There's 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 a dark humor and yet it's all very serious and ugly. Uh, he he blends these things so so effortless effortlessly. It's it's amazing that it works sometimes. I want to go sort of left field here now because we've mostly talked about films that most people probably, as we've said. Oh, yeah, that's Martin Scorsese, except for the occasional ones. I want to look at Kundum because oh, it's excellent. completely different from anything he's done. And I want you to talk a little bit, I mean, because most people probably aren't even going to know, number one, what the film is, or worse, maybe know it but didn't know Scorsese was involved in it. Um, talk talk about Kundum. Give me some background or give your listeners background so they get a better sense as to what Kundun was because it clearly qualifies as a passion project for him. Very much so, and, and I'm really glad that this is the one that, that that you chose because this is this is one of those pictures where when I, when I'm trying to express to people that Martin Scorsese is not the stereotype that you think of him as. You know, he's not just Goodfellas and and Casino and and those kind of pictures. He he actually has a very eclectic body of work. This is one of the ones that I, I like to point to because. Um, it's such a different picture, and yet it is still very much a Scorsese. So Kundun um, deals with the life of the Dalai Lama, the current living Dalai Lama, specifically um, his life from around 1937 to 1959. Um, it, it, it deals with the Dalai Lama as a child when they were first searching for the new Dalai Lama, um, him being brought into his position, and then the events that caused him to have to flee Tibet uh, with, you know, the, the conflict between Tibet and China. He fled Tibet and go, you know, and went to, to India and went into, into hiding and, and essentially has not been back to his, his home country uh, ever since 1959. And it's, um, it's a very deliberate, very slow, very meditative, very beautiful picture. It's not the kind of approach that people associate with Martin Scorsese's work, and yet it still is very much his work. It takes its time getting to where it needs to go. It doesn't mind luxuriating in just pure imagery. It's um, it's very much a spiritual picture. It's part of uh, what you might consider his his trilogy of pictures that are concerned with with faith and and, and men of faith and religious figures. Um, you know, The Last Temptation being the other one, which we spoke about, and uh, Silence, his 2016 film that barely anybody saw. 
um, that's also concerned with, with similar issues. Um, all three beautiful pictures in, in their own right. But this is one that is especially interesting because, of course, it has nothing to do with Christianity or Catholicism. It's very much outside of his wheelhouse in that regard. But I think there are, are themes enough and ideas enough in it that are meaningful to him that he's able to tap into that. He, he actually has a similar approach um, as he does in Last Temptation, where the, the, the Dalai Lama is a holy figure. He's, um, and yet Scorsese looks at him as a human being. Um, he looks at him as a, as, as a genuine human um, with, with all that, that that implies. And I think that makes it a little more powerful to me to, to see him in that regard. And of course, he was careful to use Asian actors. I mean, this is he—he he went, he did not um, compromise with when when he made the film. No, absolutely not. These are um, uh, not just Asian actors, but but um, you know, people from uh, pe people from Tibet and actual Buddhists and and um, uh, and amateurs almost across the board. Uh, most of these, including the children, who were surprisingly wonderful in their roles, um, were not professional actors he he had a lot of um a lot of amateurs that he that he brought in for for this um and that's that's tough to do because sometimes it can lend an air of authenticity but sometimes it, it can also bring a picture down because people who can't act can't act um but his the choices were very good here his the casting was was excellent because i think uh the the cast was generally uniformly uh quite quite excellent here and and yeah and and you're right in the the uh, he he was really careful about having this sense of authenticity, including uh, with the imagery that he uses, which he he doesn't explicitly go into it in in the picture, but um, there's imagery of this sand art that is uh, that is that is connected with um, with the, the the beliefs that he deals with in in this picture, and he uses this this sand art throughout the picture, not only just to Kind of visually bring you into this world and 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 um, and connect you with this world, but it's also kind of speaking to the the fleeting nature of of what's happening here and the sense of loss that um, the people of Tibet and the Dalai Lama in particular are experiencing. It's a it's it's powerful it's powerful stuff, and I really highly recommend it to people. Um, even if even even if you're not a Scorsese fan, I think for you know it's it's a it's a very dreamy, beautiful picture. I think it's I think it's one of his best, and it's sorely overlooked. Well, that, that's one of the things. That it's easy to point to the big ones, you know, the the bombastic ones, and we've talked about some of them. But it's the other ones too that I think he deserves credit for because it does show that he's got range as a director. It's easy to say, oh well, all of his films are about gangsters. All of his films are full of violence. All of his films are loud, and that's not true. And so talking about a film like this is, is important to understanding his overall uh, work. Absolutely. And, and, you know, you had mentioned before um, about him not often using traditional Hollywood scores. And that's generally the case in most of his pictures. And it's kind of the case here, but he, he, he sort of uses a traditional score, but he makes an interesting choice that works really well in having uh, Philip Glass compose the music for it. And so it's a very soft and somber and repetitive kind of score, very much un-Scorsese in that regard. Um, and there's a sequence towards the end, where I, th I think it's about 11 straight minutes of this, this um, repetitive building 
building, building Philip Glass work on the score. That is, uh, it's mesmerizing, just mesmerizing. And it builds this sense of, of tension and drama in a way that you typically don't get from Scorsese's work because he tends to have that kind of needle drop, you know, radio station approach. Um, but he doesn't do that here. And the choice was impeccably made because it just works so well. So now let's get to The Irishman. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Which made a major splash when it debuted on Netflix last year. Um, got Academy Award nominations and and everything. Um, obviously, one of the first things people said about it was that it was incredibly long, which it is. Mm -hmm. But I consider it transfixing. I've watched it twice now. And both times, I wa first time I split up. I, I sort of took a break. The second time I had the time and I literally watched it from beginning to end with no break. So I clearly found it transfixing. Do you think or did you see in a sense that this might be the culmination of his crime films? I think I think rather than it being the culmination to his crime films, I think it's more of it's um, it's more of an answer to his crime films. It's kind of I think there's a degree of this being him and De Niro and to a lesser extent. Pesci, who had to be convinced to, to start it, and, and you know, Keitel, um, looking back on their careers through this guy, through um, um, uh, through Frank Sheeran, I think this is Scorsese looking back on his career and reassessing it um, more so than taking everything that they learned previously and applying it to this one last great epic. I think this is very much some older men looking back on on their careers and looking at what they what they did and what they accomplished in a different light. I think that's I think that's the whole point of the last 45 minutes or so of the movie which has come under some criticism. I think there's a lot of viewers who find that last stretch of the picture boring. I'm not one of them. I'm 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 with you. I I saw it for the first time in the theater. I went to, up to Manhattan to see it and saw it a few more times on on Netflix and um you know that that last stretch of the picture is really what the film is all about in my eyes. Um, it's, it's very much this idea of Frank Sheeran and through Frank Sheeran, De Niro and Scorsese looking back and kind of assessing their career and seeing it through different eyes, seeing it through the eyes of, of, of an older man. Um, in Sheeran's case, of course, he's looking at it through some very empty, very dead eyes and understanding that he wasted a, a great deal of his life. I don't think that's what Scorsese's trying to tell us. I don't think Scorsese considers his past work a waste, but I think there is a sense of kind of assessment there where through this picture, he's trying to, to trying to understand the things that he did in this past and the impact that this had on him as a man now and on his family, on his relationship with people, because um, he's had some very turbulent relationships over the course of his career. Not not so in recent years, to, to be fair to Mr. Scorsese. He's he's been in a, you know, a, a great relationship for many years and, you know, and so on. But early on in his career, he um, he had many ups and downs in that in that regard. So, you know, yeah. I, so I would call this more of an answer to his to his pictures, more so to his previous crime films as opposed to a culmination of it um if that if that makes sense i don't oh, know no, if it, it does. does although it's funny i mean this is where the answers are i swear he uses the exact same shot as jerry vale that he used in casino in this I, film i believe you're right i believe you're right um and he does reuse a little bit of music um here and there um um you know there, uh, what's what's the uh 
Uh, what's the one? He re- he reuses one of the ones from from Goodfellas, and I'm blanking out on the the name right now. Um, yeah, but he reuses a, a a few a few songs. Uh, there's some some of those kind of callbacks that you see here and there. Um, so I th- you know I think I think he wants to, to wanted to to some extent wink and nod to his previous pictures. But uh, but as they said, even prior to the picture coming out, you know, if people are expecting a, another Goodfellas, that's not what this is. And the, the people who are most disappointed in it seem to be the ones who wanted that, though. I, did, I have seen also a lot of critics who who say they didn't care for it because it was just another Goodfellas. And that I really honestly, I just don't understand where they're coming from at all. No, I mean, I think I think the key is, is that he made a conscious attempt in the last part of the film to show that um, for all the quote-unquote success Sharon had in the end, um, he lost so much more, and um, his life becomes a you know somebody who depends on who needs help from other people because he can't do it himself anymore because he's so old. And I think the the I, to use the term denouement for that last 45 minutes of just the lat, the ending of his life and how, you know, he's constantly trying to make up for what he did wrong, even trying, you know, getting involved in religion and everything like that. And yet in the end, he's still unwilling to tell the FBI agents what happened. In the right. end, when they come to interview him, he still has that in his mind that he's just not going to say. And then once again, using the book as an example there are a number of points in the book where, uh, you know, the author says that he does not, is not willing to say anything that portrays a confidence. He just never is. And until he feels like he, number one, has permission or it's not going to make any difference anymore because everybody involved is dead. Unlike uh, some of his other films, uh, at the end, nothing's left everybody's either been arrested or in jail or died and it clearly shows that uh it's the the life was not necessarily one that was well lived absolutely and and i think this is uh yet another example and 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 possibly the 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 final great example of a scorsese protagonist who brings his own downfall upon himself. This is something that we see again and again in, in, in his pictures. And Frank Sheeran certainly is one of one of these guys where, you know, he he lives out his the last days of his life, a, an empty man, a lonely man, uh, even as his his family doesn't want any contact with him, you know, his his surviving daughters. And and it's his it's his fault. You want to pity him. Yet at the same time, having just seen him do, you know, uh, three, you know, almost three hours of horrific things. Um, it's hard to muster up that pity. And I don't think Scorsese demands pity of us. I think he wants us to understand that, um, you know, Frank did this, Frank did this to himself. He, 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 it was not a life well led. He, he led an ugly life. And th- these are the results of, of that life. Um, and much like Jake LaMotta and Henry Hill and so many other characters, his downfall was, through his own choices. Somebody else from the outside didn't do it to him. He did it to himself. Speaking of Henry Hill, I think, to me, this is where I it, I found Irishmen to be more authentic with the end. Not that Henry Hill didn't go have to, you know, he went into witness protection, which theoretically, oh, that's, you know, at least he's still living. But if you know anything all at all about Henry Hill up until afterwards and into his death, 
he had a terrible life going forward. He, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, he started to, he broke out of witness protection, went through marriage, went through divorce, um, got himself into all kinds of other kinds of trouble. Clearly somebody who, um, at the end of the film, you think, okay, of course it was 1990, so some of these things weren't even, you know, it had just happened not that far before. We didn't get the downfall, complete downfall from him where I suspect, uh, in a way, an Irishman, we wanted to make sure we got the full downfall. That's that's a that's that's a that's a great point, and the the parallels there are, are are definitely quite quite stark because yeah, Henry Hill's um, post post witness protection program life wasn't particularly good, and even though he was um, you know a regular on talk radio shows and all that, and he kind of became yeah, a call into Howard Stern all the time. I used to remember <laughs> yeah. hearing him call in, and it's like. <laughs> you know, it was weird. But, but it, right, he, I think he came across as one of these guys who people were were laughing at him and not with him. Um, you know, people weren't necessarily on board with him. They were more. He was more of a train wreck than anything else. Yeah, because um, if you look at Goodfellas, how many times does he actually kill somebody? Uh, yeah, that's right. He, I don't believe he does at all. Right, um, and I mean the only time I can think of is at the beginning when they when they're in the trunk, but he's just standing back. He's not involved in it. He's just right. watching. He, right. He gets involved maybe a little bit in some of the beating stuff, but it's it's interesting. And that's what he always said even later on in life is that he says he never killed anybody. Well, I appreciate your time, Eric. Uh, I think the book is a great overview. I think one review called it rather than a criticism. It's more of a of, of analysis, which I think is, is, is true. But it does, you know, you're not... Uh, somebody who will just who ignores fault is you just have found the positives and 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 the the kinds of various things that are uh, most useful in his filmmaking and i hope either you or someone else does a simple a similar review of his documentaries because i think they deserve the same kind of treatment that you did in in this book i agree so, so uh once again thank you for talking with me and um I hope everyone goes out and reads your book and, and, and uses it as a reason to go back and rewatch or watch for the first time some of these films that either one, they didn't know Scorsese made or two, forgot. And uh, they get a chance to see them again. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed uh, my time with you and, um, you know, love to do it again one time. Who knows what my next project will be? Maybe well, we'll talk it. for that. <laughs> I've had I've had multiple guests. More, I mean, I've had guests come here more than one time because they continue to write. So <laughs> nothing wrong with that. So Fantastic. Thanks a lot. Thank you. My thanks to Eric San Juan. I hope his book gives you a greater sense of one of the great American filmmakers. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. <laughs>